Sarah Fuller. Welcome to Scratching the Surface. There are a handful of topics that animate much of my work and run through the DNA of this show. The intersection of theory and practice, the overlaps of design practices and writing practices, teaching and pedagogy, how design relates to politics and society, and administration as a creative practice. And there is perhaps no one better in the design world today who embodies all of these interests of mine than my guest today, Sarah Whiting. Since 2019, Sarah has served as the Dean of the Harvard GSD. She's also the co-founder and design principal of WW Architects, has written for a variety of publications and journals from any to Wired and has served as editor for a variety of publications, books, and anthologies, including serving as the reviews editor for the journal Assemblage from 96 to 2001. From 2010 to 2019, she was the dean at Rice University School of Architecture. Sarah is one of those dream guests that I've wanted on the show for a really long time. I remember stumbling upon an essay of hers called Notes from the Doppler Effect and Other Moods of Modernism when I was just beginning this show. And in many ways, the ideas of that piece and Sarah's own thinking hover over so much of my work. In this wide-ranging conversation, We talk about the expanding opportunities for designers, the role of conversation in her work, how being a dean shapes her research, why editing is critical to her practice, how to connect form and theory in the classroom, and the value of design criticism in contemporary culture. I think you'll be able to tell how much I enjoyed this one. It truly felt like talking with a kindred spirit, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. If you'd rather read this interview, a transcript for this episode, as with all of our episodes, is available to Patreon supporters. Scratching the Surface is made possible because of listeners like you who help support the show each month through our Patreon. Supporters get bonus interviews, an exclusive monthly newsletter, and more. Students can support the show for just $3 a month, and we offer additional tiers at $5 and $10 a month for additional content. Head over to patreon.com slash surface podcast to sign up and get immediate access to all of that bonus material. Thank you as always for listening. And here is my wonderful conversation with Sarah Whiting. I want to start with a question that is maybe a really big question and a really weird question, but I think it might frame a lot of what I'm interested in talking to you about. Since 2019, you've been the dean at Harvard GSD and GSD famously or infamously to some people stands for the Graduate School of Design as opposed to architecture. And I'm wondering if that name, what that means to you or how that influences your mandate as dean um, running a school of design as a, as opposed to a school of architecture? Does that have an influence on how you think about your work? No, it's actually a very great question, a very pertinent one, because um, it's a big change uh, going from, so I was dean of a school of architecture at Rice right. for uh, almost 10 years. And um, that was not only a school of architecture, but essentially a one department school that was right. Uh, quite small and so quite contained. And so I have to consciously think I'm a dean of a school of design as opposed because I it's very easy for me to say, yeah, I'm I'm dean at the GSD, you know, the School of Architecture. Right. And I have to catch myself on that because um, obviously this is a school with three departments. So architecture, landscape architecture, urban planning and design, and then a series of programs in addition to those three departments, including design engineering, which is in partnership with the School of Design, uh, School of Engineering, um, and then uh, the Master of Design Studies, which we can talk about is a sort of interdisciplinary platform. Um, so there's, there's a, a lot going on here. And that was actually part of my desire to come here. Um, so, you know, I think deans and magazines have a 10-year lifespan. Um, of, of, you know, really doing uh, good things and then become a little bit redundant or repetitive. Oh, 
Interesting. And um, so it was a good time to move on and moving on to a school that had the three departments and a, a broader mandate um, was exciting to me. Um, so there's that reason. And then I would say the second thing is that I think what it does is allow for understanding that, um, honestly, I think all design is synthetic and interdisciplinary. And so it somewhat acknowledges that. I think at Rice, it, frankly, it's a school of architecture, but they do a lot of urban design, right. landscape, maybe not enough, but it's it's not so that the categories aren't as tidy as the professional associations might imply. And so in a way, it was sort of acknowledging something that I believe and um, stepping up and into it. You knew why I asked that question. You started hinting at my next question in that answer because I'm, I, I mean, I don't want to be too reductive here and ask you about the differences between design and architecture, mm -hmm. but I do think that there's this blurriness that we're seeing or an increased blurriness between the disciplines and that these words are becoming much more elastic perhaps than they used to be. And I'm interested in how you think about interdisciplinarity about, um, I don't know how you'd say it, the increased mandate or the expanded opportunities for designers of all forms today and how that sort of influences some of this thinking. So I would disagree with you slightly. I don't okay. think that that we're more interdisciplinary um, than we have been. In other words, I think that um, you can look to the early 20th century and speak to a broad interdisciplinarity of yeah, yeah. architecture or of design broadly. And so I think that what's shifted are the mediums available to us, mm, you know, mediums that's right. and techniques mm -hmm. and platforms. And so I yeah. think that's, that's clear. Um, I... Uh, Interdisciplinary, so I, interdisciplinarity is at my core that I, I, you know, if you came to design thinking sort of through um, design and sort of um, with some, it sounds like frustrations with design as it, as, as a single practice, I came to design from interdisciplinarity. Okay. And so um, I, I um, absolutely embrace it and see it as, as um, a natural fit. I also see it as um, at once natural in a university and yet um, also uh, still not fully understood or um, uh, let's say yeah. cultivated or vetted or uh, promoted by the university system. And so I see it I see interdisciplinarity as the still the core challenge of our university system in the U.S. That's exactly that's exactly what I was thinking about because I feel like, and I'm I'm not too familiar with the structure of, of the GSD, but I I in many of the schools I've been a part of or have visited or have talked with people, there is a lot of language around interdisciplinarity, and then when it actually gets on the ground, it becomes a lot more territorial uh, and that there, there there are a lot sort of stronger boundaries. And so there are things where, you know, after you go through the core classes at Harvard, classes are no longer sort of labeled by discipline. Can you sort of talk about that and how that encourages some of this that you're talking about? Yeah. And I would say that the challenge of interdisciplinarity exists in two different forms. So it exists in one form at the school and then it exists in a, in a, greater form and one that maybe interests me interests me even more as a challenge at the university scale. Uh, and so at the at the school scale, yes, we have distinct disciplines. We have accredited programs which are defined in part by their accrediting board. So you know professional programs in architecture, in urban planning and in landscape. And, and so, yes, you have a, there's a core curriculum that you need to gain to fulfill those expectations, but also to act as a designer uh, and a practitioner in one of those disciplines, right. in one of those fields when you graduate. Um, I love that the GSD has then all the courses beyond core, all the, all the electives and option courses don't have a, a direct affiliation with uh, a department, even though they do, because every faculty member has a direct affiliation with a department. So it's a, right. it, but it, but it signals, and I think in a very profound way that that 
you know, there is this mixing that happens at that level. In reality, that mixing is difficult. And, and in part because um, even if you've done your core discipline, um, for someone in landscape to take an advanced studio that's primarily about a building, unless they've had an architecture background, that can be super challenging. And so we find that um, the best interdisciplinary studios, uh, advanced studios or option studios, are those that are very conscious about either marrying two faculty members from two different departments or taking on a problem that has different components that people can attack in, uh, from their different fields of expertise and learn from each other, but not pretend that they actually understand everything about the other discipline. I want to read something that you wrote in your welcome letter when you became oh, okay. the dean back in, uh, this was dated July 1st, 2019. This is, yeah. I think, the first, if you go if you go to your byline on, on the GSD website and go to the first published from you. Which I never do. Um, well, <laughs> I, want, I, want to, I want to read this to you because I feel like if I wanted to, we could have a whole conversation about this paragraph. There's so much okay. in here. Um, but, but you write, and I quote, our days and semesters are filled with indispensable tools that live under headings like research, history, theory, policy, and technology. These tools shape and rattle our respective pursuits across the field of design. They also connect our departments and programs to each other, and more ambitiously, allow us to assert an elastic constellation signaling our greater ambitions as citizens in a world that has never needed us more, a world that taunts us with its promise even as it shows us its jagged edges. And that's a lot of what we've been talking about already, this elasticity, this sort of interdisciplinarity. Mm -hmm. I, I want to zero in on this second part for a second about our greater ambitions as citizens in a world that has never needed us more, a world that taunts us with its promise, even as it shows us its jagged edges. And I also want to note this was written in 2019, before COVID, before the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement before all of the sort of cultural upheaval that we've seen in the last couple of years. And can you talk about why you think the world has never needed designers more or the role of architecture and design in this world that taunts us with its jagged edges? Yeah, I would love to um, talk about that more. Um, so I, I think, yes, that was written before COVID and before Black Lives Matter, but it's not like we weren't in a milieu that was already difficult in terms of economic disparity, mm -hmm. in terms of environmental crisis, and mm -hmm. in terms of already um, understanding the frustration of civil rights not having, and, and women's rights, and yeah. gay rights not having been um, achieved, right? So I think that even if it wasn't quite as acute a moment of collective understanding, it was still a, a moment of crisis. I think the world needs designers for a very obvious reason, which is we, um, well, actually I'll give you three reasons. Um, one is that we, we organize the world around us whether at the scale of graphic design, organizing information, mm -hmm. um, whether at the scale of planning, where you organize the city around you, whether at the scale of, of architecture, where you're organizing spaces and rooms um, and so on. And, and so we have a very direct effect on how people live together in the world. So that, and, and understand the world to, to right. speak to graphic design, which I don't deal with at our school but I am fascinated. Maybe by. we should talk about that too. <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll talk about that. Um, and so that's one reason. The second, and I I often say this, is that um, the beauty of a design education is that you learn you learn to work and to explain your work, both verbally and visually. So that's incredibly powerful, especially in this moment when both of those media writ large, both of those body of media are quite powerful. And so, you know, I think that, um, so my, my twin brother is at the law school, they do, they outdo us on the verbal, but they um, fall behind us on the visual. And so, you know, I think that that's, that's amazing. And then the third is that um, I actually think everyone needs to engage the world right now. I think that we can't, um, and so, when I say that we need to act as citizens in the world and engage our problems, I, I don't think that's just people right. in the design school. And I also think that that's actually something that 
um, is understood by students today in any in any uh -huh. discipline. Something I talk about with my students a lot and sort of a definition of design that I've come to uh, adopt and repeat endlessly is, is I see design as ideology made artifact. You know, it takes mm -hmm. ways of seeing points of view, opinions, and it makes it concrete in some way. It gives it structure. It, it gives it something that, you know, we can point to. And I'm wondering, A, if that resonates with you at all. It's, it seems like it's speaking to a little bit of what you're talking about, especially sort of comparing it with your brother in the, in the law school. Um, although I guess you could argue that that law also makes ideology concrete in a different way. Um, oh, yeah. Very decisively so. Yeah. yeah. And, and I'm wondering how you, how you sort of bring those ideas into a classroom... And, and start to connect those with form, connect those with building, connect those, you know, how do you sort of talk about connecting the ideology with the actual artifact? Because I think, I think we know that intuitively, but it's sometimes hard to show those direct connections. I'm wondering how you sort of think about that and go about that. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's interesting. I, I, th I like your characterization of making ideology into artifact. I think it's a Ideology is a difficult word right now because I think it's so yeah. calcified or it's, yeah. the implication is that it's calcified, that it's it's belief systems that are um, so formed. And so um, I, you'll, you, terms like elastic and nimble are ones that I constantly refer to and return to. And I wonder if there's a better term uh, for something that because I, I what I like about your characterization is I actually do think that it you can't be you have to commit you yeah, have to have right. a, a belief system uh, you have to think through the repercussions of what you're doing and how they play out so you can't be unthinking and you can't have um, uh, it's too easy to shy away from taking a stance and right. that's part of what the the Doppler was about. Um, but but I wonder if ideology might be a, a bit of a tricky word right now, particularly. Um, <laughs> totally. so, so that's that's one thing. Um, but I do think that that's a, a good characterization. How that goes into the classroom, well, actually the second part of your question, sort of how do you, um, how do you maintain the, keep a, a foot in ideology and a foot in form is right. critical. And I think that's, that's to me, the greatest challenge of a design school, because frankly, as you know, um, teaching design, there's nothing more fun. Right. Um, it right. is, it is, you know, I go into the trays, which is our big space where all the studio desks are. And it is a beehive of intense activity uh, models, drawings, you know, imagining different futures. There's nothing more powerful than that. Yeah. But if you, um, if you don't challenge every student to say, what does this lead to? And why is this important? And how does it fit into a lineage that precedes you? I think three really critical questions that every student yeah. needs to address. Or if you say, okay, I, I understand those ideas, but how are you going to actually manifest those? How, what happens? And, yeah. and for us, so I know, you know, I, I listened to your, your podcast with Andres. Um, I guess that was your most recent one. Oh, yeah, I, yeah. I think that, you know, I agree. Um, I, I'm absolutely invested in the political and maybe that's a better word than ideological. Mm, yeah. Um, but I also think that we have to acknowledge that we're as designers, um, we're, we're already implicated by every line that we put on paper right? or every wall that we design or every right. grade change we make in a landscape and that, that those have political repercussions and, and you can't shy away from those. And right. so, um, uh, having come to design from, um, interdisciplinarity and, and cultural theory, yeah. um, I was one of those students who was really good at talking about a project and and frustrating my faculty who were like, okay, well, show me, show me. Um, yeah. And so yeah. I'm very sympathetic to students who are in that role. Um, but I do think that that's our obligation because otherwise, you if if we only uh, float around 
the ideas and the politics in a in an abstract way, we send students out, and they are um, uh, disillusioned by the exigencies of practice, um, which I suspect you were. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued by your sort of um, distinguishing and talking about your own history. You sort of distinguish an intellectually rich milieu from the practice milieu. And I would I would say, you know, if we're if we're going to change the world out there, part of what we have to change is to ensure that practice maintains an intellectually rich component. Yes. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think part of not to not to then, you know, go back through my history again. I think part of that was just being too young to understand how to actually be a practicing designer like yourself, who was really interested in ideas. And then it was like, okay, well, how do you make something out of this? You know, that was sort of, I, I, I didn't know how to bridge that gap. And I also think a lot of graphic design is very sort of quick and responsive. And, it's very fast. and yeah. you know, when you're working in with clients and on projects, there often just isn't time for you know, sort of deep thinking or reflection on the projects, which I sort of always found frustrating, which is what you're saying with, if you only talk about the ideas and then students go in to work, um, th that's, that's sort of a hard adjustment. And I don't know, I don't know if I have a question here. Um, no, but I, I, I want to, I want to actually jump in because okay. I think that you, you put on the table exactly part of the problem, which is this question of time which is a, mm. a subtopic that fascinates me and I keep returning to as a, as a topic. And that's partly because, um, yes, we live in a, in a world that has accelerated further and further. There's actually now a theory of acceleration, which yeah. I find you know, brilliant yeah. um, and also sort of a little frustrating that there seems to be a theory about everything. But, but I think that the, um, the reality that our world happens very quickly and we do have as practitioners we don't have much time to think right. is something that we have to push back at in the profession as opposed to saying then we all turn to academia because i think that that is part of what creates this divide and so i would set as an example erma bohm whose work is behind you because right. it took how many years to do that sheila hicks book um, right. you know that, that was extraordinary story to say, no, this takes time to actually mine this work and find the right way of translating it and um, showcasing it, but also making a project out of it. Um, and so, um, you know, she's she's a practitioner who I think really just sort of holds mm -hmm. fast to as much time as a project needs. Let me flip that back on you for mm -hmm. a second as a dean you've been you've been dean at harvard since 2019 you mentioned already you were at rice before that for nine years that's a that's an intense job um managing multiple departments managing you know all of the students faculty curriculum budgets all the administration how do you think about time in your work and how do you sort of balance that um uh, I'm I'm making divides and binaries again, which I don't mean to do, but sort of that administration work with that sort of research and thinking that so clearly excites you. Yeah. How do you think about that sort of in your day to day? So a couple couple things. One, I would say I don't I don't have a good balance, <laughs> and so I'm not a good model. Part of that is um, trying to tackle. So this 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 school grew very very quickly um uh over a short period and the faculty didn't grow um at, at the same pace which is typical for schools right, that right. grow and so the and the administration was working hard to keep pace and so a lot of things are being done the same way they were being done when i taught here before uh -huh. in the early 2000s and yet it, it's not sustainable and so I think, and that's a design. There's the the operation of a school is a design problem in its in its own right. That was my next question. Yeah, and it's it, but but one that's extremely hard to tackle because it requires getting everyone to to realize you you we all need to take time and rethink and also adapt to new ways of working. And so, in a in a way, you could say the pandemic 
helped. I, I don't know if I want that to stay in as a comment, um, but it gave us um, uh, different ways of working very quickly. And it proved to us that we can work differently. Right. Um, we also hired um, someone during right before the pandemic or during the pandemic. I can't remember now when when we brought him on board, Sebastian Schmidt Dalzone, who has the patience to think about things, uh, processes, um, more, much more, and also the the patience to look at different tools and the belief in data and tools that I don't uh. necessarily share. So he's able to approach things and say, what if we do it this in which, so I think having people around you, you know, he's just one of many staff members who have taken the time to think, okay, this is a way we could do this better, yeah. um, which, and they're better at that than I am. And so you need to be able to find the people who can do that and, and nurture them and give them the time and space and support. Yeah. Um, but we haven't cracked it yet. So we're still changing things and trying to improve things. And in terms of my own time, there are two things I, I so one, I realize that I'm someone who works very horizontally, that um, I, I have short attention spans. I'm not a great person for a long project. And so I actually, um, uh, I work, I thrive even by being slightly distracted by many things that I can take care of at once. Oh, this makes me feel better about myself. No, I'm the <laughs> same, I'm the same way. <laughs> but having said that, I'm aware that 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 can also you can let the little projects distract you into thinking you're you're getting things accomplished. And and yeah. I am aware that I need, and so I have a very good team in my office, uh, my own administrative team who are very good about saying, here, um, here's help in taking care of these gazillion emails, but you still haven't done this, which you promised, you know, 10 days ago. Right, and so right. you need a sort of little, uh, a kind guilt factor to help push you along. I love how you, how you describe being a dean as a type of design project. I've talked to, I, I'm very interested in administration and institutions. I've talked to many deans and administrators who have all said, you know, versions of that. And, and so I want to sort of ask you like, uh, maybe a higher level version of the previous question, how, how being at Harvard, how being a dean influences all the other work that you do, the work in your studio, the, the research and the writing that you do, what's impressed me about your tenure so far is you've, you've seemed to have maintained a, a writing practice and a, a, a pub, you know, you've been publishing. Um, I mean, it's never as much. Yeah, exactly. I think that's what Um, takes. Yeah. Um, but how do you, how do you think sort of having to operate as a dean with those, you know, administrative tasks that you were just talking about and having a team that handles your emails and all of that, has that changed how you run a studio or how you do research or your research interests? How do those start to be in dialogue with each other? So, no, I mean, I think that, that there are very good deans who are very good at delegating and and assembling teams. I've never been good at, at, having a team help me with my research. I have I had a lot of students over over the years help me with my research and I'm indebted to them for finding material or for checking material or for formatting my dossier or things like that. But um, honestly, I'm not that good at because I, I tend to work. Um, I also sort of love the part of of writing where you you essentially have the time to get lost in other topics that are to the side of what you write. So I tend to spend way too much time on the first paragraph of anything I write because I'm exploring many different things. Yeah, And I find that a kind of um, intellectual luxury. So I'm not that good at that. Um, and and I will just as a side note, my team that helps me organize my emails, they're only the the dean emails and, um, and they, I still, and I still play a heavy role in them. And so <laughs> I believe a lot in the personal voice. Um, so I'm not, I, I, I would be more effective or more efficient if I delegated more of that, of my own work. Um, and I, it's just not the way 
I work. And so I admire those who do, but that's, you know, or I look at, I'm, I'm very familiar with people at DATA and in mm. Zurich and they have whole teams of people who work with them. And yeah. that's a great way of, of getting big projects done. But again, um, I, one of the luxuries I have for my writing, maybe one change you could say is um, right now I can just do the projects that I think actually mean something to me. Though right. I still do get asked to write like a preface for a friend's book and and they mean a lot to me. So I tend to say yes. Yeah. And then I find myself wondering sort of why am I saying yes to all of these? Because they're, they're pleasurable, yeah. but they're distracting. So um, so that's one thing. Yeah. yeah. Do, does it I mean, do, what about like um, the types of projects that you take on or the types of topics that you do want to write about in your own sort of intellectual interests? Do you think being in a position of dean being able to see all the things happening at harvard does that change has that changed like your interest in architecture or what interests you about architecture at all no i don't i, I you know okay. i really don't think that my i don't first of all i don't think of myself all the time as a dean i sort of often like i'll walk out of the building and i'll go through the lobby and someone will hold the door open and say and i'll say thank you and they'll say oh yes of course for the dean and i'll be like oh my god do they really <laughs> think of me like that because i forget and it's going to sound disingenuous but it's it's easy to forget that that's a, a big title especially at a school like this right um, interesting and so you know i i think that my interests in writing projects or in thinking about things have not changed a whole lot um, since I was uh, maybe even in college. And so um, I, yes, yes, I have, I don't know. I mean, I guess I have access to a lot of interesting interlocutors here. And that's yeah. one thing, you know, Harvard is extraordinary for the people who come through and inspire, you know, I think I often get this why I like listening to podcasts and we can talk about that more. And I particularly like listening to interview podcasts because I get inspired by by little things that send you off into thinking about things differently. And yeah, you know, Harvard for for I mean, unbelievable. Uh, the the people who come through the GSD or the people who come through um, the university or my colleagues across the university or within the school it's, it's, it, you're constantly provoked intellectually, and that is so rich. So right. that is definitely true. We, I mean, I feel like we're just so, everything you're saying, I'm like, oh, this is, this is exactly how I feel about these things. I'm not just That's saying nice. that because I'm talking to you. Um, but I'm the same way. I don't, I don't actually listen to that many podcasts. Um, but the ones that I do listen to are long form freewheeling interviews like I do on the show for that same reason. It's like, I never know where it's going to go. And just sort of hearing two smart people talk about something is endlessly fascinating and generative. Because I think actually conversation is for me a part of the intellectual project and it's a very important part of the school. And so for me, um, I, and that's that's in part why I'm constantly referring to um, podcasts or encouraging students to listen to them because I think that we're, we, we live in a moment when a lot of information is pre-digested and then delivered and then you have smart people or people who can recite data or right. sound bites to you. But I'm more interested in smart people who can converse. So who pay attention to what's being said and then who build on an idea, um, which is why I'm super excited about our, our student publication called Pairs. Have oh, you yeah. seen that? Yeah, just because a little bit. I've seen just a little bit a, of it. It's an interview format that's also about a subject and an object and so uh, it's the double pairing right and the the interview format i think is fantastic for students and has been really valuable for you know this is a format that i think is really important to promote um when interviews are thoughtful which is why i think some of the podcasts it's, it tends to be long-form podcasts yeah that i think are more valuable I, I mean, not to get too meta here, but I, that's sort of the the driving ambition for me is it's it's like monologue. I'm I'm sort of tired of hearing monologues. You know, the the people who go up at the podium, they have their slides. Mm -hmm. It's it's fully mm -hmm. scripted. This is much more interesting because I'm getting to hear. I've I've 
you know, watched a bunch of talks that you did to prepare for this. But today, right now, I'm hearing you say things you've never said before, or never said yeah. publicly that I've been able to find. Um, and I, and we wouldn't have gotten that yeah. any other way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, I, I think it's, um, so the, the, and when I, when I was at Rice, I taught, I taught a class at Rice that was, was um, based on the interview format. So it was, it oh, was, we would invite four speakers as part of the public lecture series and students would prepare, um, read, read background work about those four speakers in the, in the seminar. And then the day after the morning after their talk, the students would interview and the format was they had to submit a long version of a question and a short version of a question. Oh, interesting. Acknowledging that conversation isn't always controllable, but if there's something you really want to get in there, you have to have two ways of slipping it in as a question. Yeah. And the rule was everyone had to speak. Everyone had to get a question on the table in the, the seminar with the guest. Um, and that was a phenomenal format. That's a great like, idea. Really sort of encouraging students to learn how to converse and and have an exchange with these people who they put on pedestals, but then they could realize we're actually really normal people. I want to sort of shift a little bit and talk about editing for a little bit. Oh, yeah. Because, that's, so know, that's the other way I characterize being a dean is it's okay. like being an editor. Well, that's what I was thinking. I, 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 you've been editing almost your entire career also. And so much of what you're talking about sounds, I, I've done some editing also and thinking about conversation. You mentioned earlier this idea of personal voice being important, the way you were talking about Dean sounded like editing. How has being an editor sort of influenced your thinking on this? Or how is how is editing sort of, um, you know, its own type of design practice, maybe? That's the best way of characterizing it. I, I love editing. And, I and I, I, when I edit, I edit both. I do line editing and idea editing at the same yeah. time, because I'm very, and, and I see it as a design project, because I, I love beautifully crafted writing. Um, and at the same time, you know, I, I push for it has to has to actually say something, right? Right. Um, and I do see the same thing. So I, I, I love the editing work that I do. It, it is, you know, a, a material process in a way. And, and deaning is a very similar thing. Essentially, a good editor is helping um, have helping take a piece of writing and have it shine. It's sort of you know yeah. burnishing off the edges that that don't work. And it's the same thing when you're a dean. It's trying to uh, you you essentially want to enable your faculty to shine. And so mm -hmm. it's nudging. Okay, what if you you know do this this way, or what if you recognize that you're spending time on that and that's actually not helping you or um, uh, things like that. So it's mainly mainly the faculty, but the school as a whole. Um, and so, yeah, I see it very, as very similar. It's a sort of, you know, backstage, but I see, I like editor better than director because uh -huh. I think an editor enables something to be, you know, you don't look at a book's editor first, you look at the author. Right. And I think acknowledging that a good dean is not, shouldn't be the autocrat, but should be the enabler. Yeah. I, I hate that word, but it, but you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that makes perfect sense to me. Can you talk a little bit more about how you think about editing as a design process? I've, I've taught writing classes to graphic designers a lot. And I, I spend a lot of time talking about how so much of the vocabulary between the two are similar. And we talked before we were recording about my interest in sort of the overlap of graphic design and writing. Um, yeah. But they're both about sort of giving ideas for, you know, it's it's going back to that ideology artifact thing. It's, it's giving yeah. it a shape. Um, but then you're thinking about structure. You're thinking about rhythm. You're thinking about pacing. All of the things, you're thinking about hierarchy. You're thinking about how someone moves through audience. Yeah. Um, yeah. How do you sort of think about that? Or are there overlaps between editing, or we could even say writing generally and sort of architectural practice? Yeah, no, I think there are. And I think part of it is that um, uh, I think the most successful writing is writing that um, understands its audience and its medium, but ideally can speak to a broader audience than that one. 
Mm. And so, um, you know, this is where, say, writing in the Atlantic or the New Yorker tends to be um, writing that can can speak to many different registers. Um, I just had so the our PhD pro seminar the, in the in the spring semester um, this semester, which um, Ed Eigen is teaching, mm. is bringing in different uh, members of the the PhD faculty, and um, we're supposed to talk about our own methods. And I used it as a chance to talk about different writing formats and how oh, one has to be co conscious of yeah. like when you're writing something, what are what is it being published in, and what does that mean? And the pleasure of that, um, and maybe um, the fact that I've been a little bit freewheeling in too many different formats and audiences, and and um, you know the risk of that, let's say. Uh, yeah. But I so I think that um, I I think that editing uh, is it is crafting, it is like building. Um, I I think partly it's it's to you're you're also constantly listening to what a text is so that it's um, uh, you have a sense of what it's like to hear it. Um, yeah. yeah. This is this is also why I I'm anticipating your final question, which of course I know, but I, I like listening to books, but I have very specific issues with that, with audio books or with audio okay. podcasts. So we'll talk okay. about that. Yeah, we'll talk about that at the end. Uh, I, I mean, I want to, I don't want to spend too much time on this because I've heard you tell this story a couple times, but it, I'm reminded of it when you were just talking about writing there about how when you were in eighth grade, you wrote this 10 page paper. On, yeah. you know on the history of architecture, history of architecture yeah and um, interview with an architect I mean it was yeah it was um and so like that that's uh, so much of what you're talking about has been there your whole life um I'm thinking about uh you know your early career working for Eisenman and Coolhouse who are two sort of practitioner theorists it's interesting to me that this sort of theory and practice relationship, this interest in writing, this interest in editing, all of this has been there from the beginning. I have two questions about that. Do you have thoughts on where that came from or why that this goes back to your earlier comment about sort of coming into architecture through interdisciplinarity, how that happened? And then the second question is how that has then shaped what you have gone on to do this sort of constant oscillating between these so if you've heard that story and and i will note that you know i wrote that paper in eighth grade and my twin brother wrote a paper about law and so you know our mrs Masick was very prescient our eighth grade teacher um oh you were in the same class too we're in middle school we were in the same okay. in eighth grade specifically we were in the same class and um in a in a school where my mother taught actually so that's a that's a whole story in itself um but but um where did that come from i mean i'm i'm interested in i've always been interested in um this is this is I, this is i've also said this and and it sounds kind of naive maybe but I'm extremely interested in the fact that there are billions and billions of people in the world and and we share so many things and we yet are so different. And so um, this is why I like the art of conversation and the interview is seeing ideas evolve from the connection between people. It's why I like design because it it actually puts people in connection with other people. And so that is maybe the sort of glue of what yeah. marks like i'm all over the place but actually i realized that's a constant um and being then, all over the place is the constant you mean no no what's a constant is is an interest in and in how people oh, okay okay deal with one another is in in yeah. broad terms um and then the second is you know as you've probably also heard i wanted to be the critic of the new york times or right. actually the international herald, Tri herald tribune based in paris um and so um, I I wanted I and I still see you know that makes sense to me still is I like short form writing I like journalism as mm -hmm. a, a venue that speaks to a broader audience I like the idea that architecture has a broad audience that needs you know that can be engaged by that and so that's also a, a constant. 
but then the you know there's there's the academic side um i mean i grew up in an academic family all of us now all the kids are affiliated right. with universities we're all kind of geeky and not very rebellious so we all ended up nice academics as well as a couple professional practitioners as we head into the the end of this conversation i want to pick up something you just said about you know you, you wanting to be the the architecture critic for the new york times and we've been talking a lot about sort of design media or design discourse or talking around it throughout yeah. this conversation i'm curious sort of your thoughts on the state of design discourse and publishing and, and writing today i mean i think I'll, I'll give you my sorry i hate doing this sure. i'll give you my thought first and sure you know, just to sort of you know maybe maybe start that that dialogue a little bit i hear so often that there are uh, you know, not enough places to write about design. And and that's specifically a graphic design sort of argument um, that the major newspapers don't have critics anymore, that we're sort of in this crisis of criticism, which feels like a thing that we've just been hearing about forever. Uh, and maybe we have been hearing about forever. Yet there's also more opportunities to write about design than ever before. All sorts of publications, like you said, The Atlantic is covering design and it's sort of uh, obscure in different ways. There's sort of upstart publications that are, that have an influence and are, you know, building an audience. And, and there's this sort of like, I don't know, it's almost like a, a, a collapsing and rebuilding that we're seeing right now, where a lot of those big institutes, the, 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 like the single critic is no longer a thing that matters. And there's now this, this sort of variety. Um, how do you, what do you think about sort of design writing today and design discourse today? Mm, that's a big question. Um, I mean, I think what you've outlined is true um, and is a reality that one can't really lament. But boy, uh, hearing the, the NPR laid off so many, uh, what is it, 10% of its yeah. workforce? Yeah, a hundred people. Uh, yeah. It's, 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 um, frightening, I think, to see. I, I'm fascinated by watching what the New York Times has done to stay relevant and <laughs> stay in tune with new media, but they've they've invested a lot in it and it's it's risky. And I, I think, you know, I, I applaud them for the different ways they've been keeping a pace. Because I do think that there's still a value to having, let's say, the big, the big, big formats right. present and strong enough. And I think even having critics with names that we can bandy about and sort of know their, their perspective so that we can position ourselves in relationship to them is right. valuable for cultural discourse. And so, um, you know, I think that if people say, oh, well, it's great that we don't have that kind of authoritarian overview I, I actually think that's a that's a pity. And so the loss huh. of the critic and the, the right. absence of um, architectural criticism specifically, but but um, design, I would say the built environment criticism is yeah. a real loss, because I think that especially in the US, um, so much of the built environment is so controlled by um, large capital it seems like it's a force on its own and can't be either understood or intersected or interfered with. And, and I think the more that the public understands, the more they can actually voice their opinion. Mm -hmm. And I think that level of opinion politics at a very local scale is actually very valuable. And so um, I think that's a, that's a, a big crime. Having said that, yes, there are a lot of new formats. There are a lot of valuable ones. I would I would give a shout out in particular to the New York Review of Architecture, which I think is a fantastic. They're new so format. they're doing such great work. Yeah, very very good work, and I love that they play with different formats of columns within mm -hmm. one issue. But I think that 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 speaks to a small audience, and I I think the proliferation of formats is great, but. The fact is that just is part of our um, uh, yeah. world becoming a series of niche audiences. 
Yeah, as you were saying that, I was thinking about the comment you made earlier about the sort of separation between kind of academia and practice. And, yeah. you know, the, the people who get frustrated with that, they go into academia, and it sort of furthers that. And it seems like in some way, this speaks to that also, you know, it's just, um, you know, th that speaks to this, this, this need, or, or, you know, your sort of desire for those critics, because that, that can sort of speak across those audiences in some way, perhaps. Yeah, and I think, you know, there ideally there can be additional platforms. It's why I always ask people what podcasts they listen to or what websites they go to, um, because I think we're always searching for, you know, and I keep paring down my podcast list, but I keep thinking, am I missing like the one that will actually be the <laughs> one I can count on? Um, and, and the same with newsletters or, yep. or websites. Yep. And I, I think that that's, um, I, that's something that I think, you know, I, I try and explain to students, it's very important to figure out what sources you're relying on and that you want to contribute to, or you want to have be part of your worldview. Um, uh, and I find that very exciting, but also very frustrating that um, those sources are, are proliferating and yet becoming a little bit invisible. I think that's a, a really nice way. I have two more questions sure. for, for you. The first yeah. one, um, you know what the second one's going to be, apparently. Um, <laughs> but the, the first one like, sort of... It's on mysteries, I tend to read the end. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm not uh, really good with suspense. This first question sort of speaks to what you were just talking about, um, you know, listening to all these podcasts, listening to these newsletters, you know, encouraging students to to do that. You've said a couple times that you're all over the place. You're, you mm -hmm. thrive on distraction. You're interested in a lot of different things. What's What are you thinking about right now? What are the things that are interesting to you sort of right now? And that can be in architecture and design or or generally. What's What's getting you excited about you know, sort of intellectually excited right now? Partly I'll wait till what I'm reading to explain <laughs> that, but, but partly I can answer that. So um, Rahul Mahotra and I just edited the latest issue of the Harvard Design Magazine on today's global. And um, that I find that's just like a, a toe in a very important topic today. And I would say that that intellectually, I'm very interested in how we operate at different scales and how mm. we can be effective at different scales. And so I've long been interested in the scale of of the sort of the common, but not the neighborhood. so i'm 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 interested mm. in how people come together, as I've said several times now, but I'm not interested in self-similarity, which is why i'm i I find sort of neighborhood um, fetishization yeah. uh, is a little oh. makes me nervous because That's it's so interesting. people who are comfortable with other people who are like themselves right. or in the little world their little bubbles and we have an intellectual version of neighborhoods happening today that speaks a little bit to what we were just talking about yeah so i'm interested in um how today's global can help break that and not pull someone away from the importance of the local, which is, I think, where we can be most effective politically, yeah. uh, but can still recognize the value of our global environment. So I guess different scales. And, and I think that is actually a result of being at the GSD, where um, in part, you're constantly pulled to different scales in terms of the, if you look at the I don't know, 33 option studios that we have this semester. I can't remember how many it is. It's crazy number of studios. Yeah. The range of topics is a range of scales and range of questions. And so I would say that's a, a topic that I'm I'm intrigued by right now. I'm I'm mad that I asked you that at the end because I feel like I have 20 questions that we could talk about just with that. So that's here's... the beauty of a podcast because that's <laughs> ideally this should get you thinking and and actually it also helps me to actually say that out loud. So well, well, here's the last question, which I guess you know already. What are <laughs> you reading right now? Yeah, no, I so I I toyed with um, not telling the truth on this one because <laughs> what I'm going to answer sounds very. Um, 
maybe a little overly academic and and makes me really um, nerd out. So I'm I am reading. I love how you're, you're like thinking like branding purposes here. Like how yeah, is this exactly. going to make me cover? Like does I know, this fit exactly. my brand? No, this really this really does. So first of all, I I um, thrive on fiction. Um, it's, it's very important to me and in part, cause uh, I, I love crafted writing, mm -hmm. but it also is a way I I'm very interested in fiction that, that, um, illuminates again, relationships between people or, uh, ways that people interact with other people. And so, um, my touchstone literature, okay. The, the, the one that explains what I'm always interested in, but I'm not reading right now is um, Simone de Beauvoir's um, oh, yeah. Woman Destroyed, which I think is an extraordinary slim novella that explicates how we can never know someone who we think we know very well. So I'll leave that one at that. I recommend it to everyone. Um, but right now I'm reading um, Karlo Vignausgaard's most recent book, which is um, Morning Star. Yeah. And I'm reading that one. And then I'm listening to Emmanuel Carrel's um, uh, the kingdom and I'm listening to it in French and so which is Le Royaume and so two things they're, they're actually they really overlap because uh, Carrère and um, Knausgaard are both uh, these these figures who you can't really categorize in one genre and they really mix autobiography yeah. and in, uh, in in ways that I think are very interesting there are also two people who I think I would find insufferable in real life. They're very, they're equally narcissistic and, and overtly so. Um, uh, but I, I find them both fascinating for um, actually understanding someone who I wouldn't necessarily like in real mm. life and, and understanding their perspective. But I also think they're both incredible writers. Um, right. The Carrère I'm listening to in part to to practice my French. My mother was French, and and um, I I tried maintain it. And he he is narrating it. It's a, a they're both super long books, which is frustrating. So this is in fact I think the third time I've been reading Le Royaume. I've I've read it, the physical book. I've listened to it, but I've never gotten through the whole thing. Um, okay. And just because it's it's so long, but. He narrates very beautifully. He has very clear French, and I think he's mm. uh, a sort of fascinating figure. The Knausgaard is so I, I read my struggle, and I really found it quite amazing. Um, I think this is a very beautifully written book, and I'm kind of fascinated by his going into a different format than than that. The right. six tomes of gazillion pages about himself. So. Yeah, I haven't read those yet. They're 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 one of those. It's like I'll get to those someday. Um, yeah, I, I, number I don't know two when. is I think the best one, but I I I do actually think it's it's very beautiful writing. And they both both Carrel and and Knausgaard are able to talk about the everyday, but also very uh, philosophical um, topics. The yeah. kingdom is is actually I mean I don't know if you you I don't know if you know his writing generally. So he, I, I'm aware of it. You know, I've read bits and pieces, but not I've not spent a lot of time. So he wrote the first book that Carrera wrote that I that I was attracted to was called The Mustache, La Mustache. And it's about a guy who um, one day decides to shave off his mustache and his wife doesn't notice and his good friends don't notice. And he starts to wonder if he ever had one. And it's he descends into it. I mean, it's it's a very short book and it's very beautifully written. Um, okay. And then the the kingdom is is hugely long and is a um, it it's a sort of novelization of the first decades of the Christian Church. Um, okay. So he's he's essentially taking on um, uh, Luke and okay. uh, uh, but it's also a, an autobiography of his own. Um, oh, interesting. Religious beliefs and then his discarding of his religion. So it's. But it's it's essentially saying, how is it that all these people believe this story um, of of Christ, and why is that why is that held for so long, and why is this this shared belief, which I find fascinating as a you know, um, and and so and the Knausgaard is also sort of talks about 
belief or different people's beliefs. And it's not, not a question so much of faith, but I think um, I'm very interested in issues of people's beliefs mm -hmm. and, and again, relationships among people. And both of them are authors who are very good at capturing that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's funny. I, I think that sort of sums up so much of what we've been talking about today, actually. Um, Sarah, I feel like I could talk to you all day. This has been such a, <laughs> such a delight. A I've enjoyed this so I've much. Really enjoying your, your, your conversations with others. So I knew that it would be um, a lot of fun to talk with you. I, I appreciate the podcast a lot. And oh, uh, thank you. Thank you so much. And thanks for your time. And thanks for, for being on the show. Absolutely. This episode was recorded on February 24th, 2023. Our theme music is by Andy Orgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can support the show on Patreon and find previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening.